You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLeggi. We know childhood obesity is a significant concern in the United States, but how does fructose factor into this epidemic? How can physicians approach a discussion about nutrition with parents whose children are overweight? Joining us today to discuss childhood obesity, what the role of fructose is Dr. Miriam Voss, Assistant Professor in the Department of Gastroenterology at Emory University School of Medicine and Pediatric Hepatologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Voss is also the author of the book, No Diet Obesity Solution for Kids. Welcome, Dr. Voss. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Miriam, this is certainly a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Childhood obesity, I know, and a lot of people know, is increasing in numbers and percentages. What do you see as some of the most important factors that contribute to childhood obesity today? Well, it's certainly complicated, and if I could pick out kind of the top things that I think are making the biggest difference, it's the change in activity level combined with the change in nutrition. And it's probably the change in nutrition that's more complex, but it certainly has to do with a rise in sugar consumption and a change in eating pattern where families are eating out much more than they're eating at home. From your perspective, if we focus on diet, what are some of the most important diet components to target? What should we be really worried about? Well, of course, the number one is sugar-sweetened beverages. And they're probably the worst because they're so accessible, so easy to drink, and they don't cause a sensation of satiety in the child. They are usually excess calories. like They're calories that don't come along with other nutrients. And it's the biggest single change in, I think, the diet of kids compared to even a few decades ago. So what you're saying is that these sugar-sweetened drinks don't really create any sense of satiety? Mm-hmm. So the calories go in, but they don't really register, not in the same way. Even something sweet, like a muffin or something that would have had the same amount of sugar in it, that's going to give a feeling of satisfaction, of a little bit of stomach distension. The protein and fat that goes along with the sugar slows down the absorption. And so the response to that is a lot different than the response to a glass of soda or juice or something that has sugar in it, but not that density and not the other nutrients. So with that, I know fructose plays a big role. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, fructose is pretty interesting because in some ways, sugar is sugar. So the calories in fructose are not different than glucose, but the way the body responds to fructose is very different compared to glucose. So fructose, when it goes in, it's absorbed in the intestine and it goes through the portal blood to the liver. And there, it has to be metabolized essentially first pass. So a lot of the glucose will kind of move through the liver and go out to the periphery, go to muscle, go to fat tissue, and it's handled there. But the fructose has to be handled immediately in the liver because our blood fructose levels are not allowed to rise. It's kept quite low. So the liver gets a large burden of fructose immediately, and there's a rapid metabolism, but one of the interesting things about that metabolism is that it bypasses 
the rate-limiting enzyme that is controlled by insulin. So there's a negative feedback mechanism that fructose kind of just moves around. It just bypasses it. And so that's the thought of why maybe fructose seems to be associated with more harm than glucose. The animal studies are really interesting. If you put mice, rats, hamsters, kind of any rodent on a fructose water diet, so kind of fructose Kool-Aid, you could think of it, compared to glucose Kool-Aid, the fructose animals will get metabolic syndrome. They'll get hypertension, visceral adiposity, high triglycerides, fatty liver, and the glucose animals don't get it, even though the calories are identical. Really? Mm-hmm. So I know you've done a lot of research regarding the impact of fructose and childhood obesity, and you've talked about some of this, but can you walk us through some of your findings? Sure. So in kids, one of the questions then is if the sugar is causing, you know, this harm. And you'll notice that I use sugar, you know, instead of fructose. And although I think that fructose is responsible for some of the direct effects, I like to translate it back to sugar in general because when people eat fructose, they're usually getting some glucose too, so it's kind of the total sugar burden. So specifically to look at fructose, we are giving kids drinks that either have fructose in them or have glucose in them. And the study that we're doing, just kind of wrapping up now, and we've submitted some of our findings, is to look at whether that fructose causes oxidative stress. And it looks like it does. So when we give kids doses of fructose with their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, their oxidative stress goes up, and it stays up overnight. But if I take that same child and give them glucose beverages with their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, their oxidative stress does not go up. Their triglycerides don't go up as much either. So, Mary, when you talk about oxidative stress, are you talking about production of oxygen-free radicals? It may not be oxygen-free radicals. What we measure is something called the redox potential, and it's a direct measurement of the level of oxidation of glutathione compared to how much reduced glutathione there is. So it's really a marker of the oxidation response of the body to that metabolite. So would you say from your research that fructose is a pro-inflammatory agent? That's a good question because there are a lot of compensatory mechanisms. And without following children longer, I can't tell you if this particular change in oxidation leads to inflammation, but I would suspect that's true. I think it's something that really needs to be looked at. Probably the best way to look at that would be to take kids who consume fructose regularly so they have a high sugar consumption and take them off of it and see if their inflammatory levels get better. That'd be a great question. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me to discuss childhood obesity, what the role of fructose, is Dr. Miriam Voss, assistant professor in the Department of Gastroenterology at Emory University School of Medicine and pediatric hepatologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Well, Miriam, I must be way off the mark in this. I had thought that fructose was actually a sugar substitute or good. And what I'm learning here today is that is not true. With that, do you recommend a low fructose diet to your children? I do. And you know, that information, you know, you came by that honestly, because it used to be thought that fructose would be good for diabetes. 
that was because fructose did not stimulate an insulin response. It, you know, I told you it kind of bypasses the insulin regulation. And so you don't right. get that big kind of bump in insulin postprandially when you give fructose like you do with glucose. But I think that postprandial insulin bump is important for regulation. And so the longer-term studies that they did on diabetics showed harm. But that information, I think, was not as well-known. So I do recommend for patients that they decrease sugar. It's hard to pick out fructose alone because fructose comes hand-in-hand in in most sugars. Sucrose is half fructose. It's a disaccharide of one molecule of fructose, one molecule of glucose. So for families, what I tell them to do is to look at labels for sugar, for sugar products, for corn syrup, for high fructose corn syrup. It's really all the same in my book. I don't differentiate. You know, when you're talking to families, do you do a cross-application over to adults? Meaning, I know this is for children specifically, but would we take the same information to adults? Yes, most definitely. And adults are probably more susceptible because they're metabolic responses are a little bit less flexible than children. So sugar is probably even a little more harmful for adults in large amounts. And certainly it's easier for families to make a change as a whole family. So if the parents are decreasing their sugar-sweetened beverages, then they're serving as good role models for the kids. And they're also making it so that it can just be out of the home. Because if nobody's drinking it, then it's a lot easier than if one person is That makes perfect sense. How about for children of various ages, like someone who may be one or two versus 14 or 15? Are there different recommendations? The American Academy of Pediatrics does sort of increase the amount of juice that kids are allowed to have over the ages. But for patients in high-risk families, so if the adults are overweight, I probably wouldn't even get started with juice. With my own patients, I tend not to differentiate The folks I see in my clinic are there because either a child has uh, fatty liver disease or is overweight and they're seeking help. And so I make a recommendation that they decrease all drinks that have sugar in it. And that would be over the full range of ages. Miriam, I'm going to ask a very naive question here, but bear with me. If a parent or myself walks into the grocery store and I'm looking for a drink that has some, quote, sweetness to it, but don't want to get into any issues that are going to contribute to my health, my children's health, or obesity. Is there anything specific I should be looking for? I don't know if you're going to like this response, but I would say milk, regular milk, not chocolate milk or strawberry milk, because milk has lactose in it, and it's a little bit sweet. But the problem is is that most of us are drinking enough really sweet beverages, like diet sodas or regular sodas or sport drinks, And they all have a lot of sweetness. But if you stop drinking the really sweet things, then your ability, the taste receptors for sweet, actually upregulate and become more sensitive again. And so you can taste the sweetness of milk. And then, of course, I have to tell you, I recommend water. Water, water, water for everyone. I'm hearing a real negative towards any sweetener. Yeah, there's some interesting data in animals. So with rats, if you give them basically diet drink, you know, their water has diet sweetener in it. And I don't think it matters which one. And if you give them plain water, the rats on the diet drink gain weight. And they hypothesize, I think more is being done with this, but this is because it dysregulates their internal 
metabolism. So the rats use their taste of what they're consuming in order to assess and analyze, okay, I've gotten this amount of calories. Of course, this is all, you know, just part of the complex metabolism we all have, but it messes it up to eat diet products. It's so fascinating because what I hear back from even many dietitians is limiting quote-unquote sugar intake and going to artificially sweetened drinks or foods. But in fact, that sounds like it's not the right answer. It's probably not the way to go, and especially in pediatrics, because if a child becomes used to a diet product, you have to kind of assume that they're going to drink that particular thing or eat that particular thing for the next 80 years. And there's no artificial sweetener that has the kind of testing that can support me giving it to a growing child and recommending that they use it for 60 to 80 years. So I feel pretty confident in telling parents that I don't recommend artificial sweeteners. And I encourage them to go back to real food, just the simple you know, water, milk, fruits and vegetables, things that don't have things added to them. And I think that really improves health because it automatically decreases your consumption of chemicals of artificial sweeteners, of sugar, and it increases the antioxidants and the nutrients because those fresh foods have higher levels. Miriam, are there any other specific nutritional components that we need to be aware of besides limiting fructose or sugars? Anything else that we need to be concerned with? I think one of the things that really helps families is to eat at home. And that sounds like a simple recommendation, but it's hard I mean, I think families find it a challenging one because they like going out and they're used to that. There's some conveniences to it. But there's so many benefits. If they eat at home, they tend to not have food that has as much sugar added to it or as much fats added to it. And then they also tend to eat more vegetables. It gives them more freedom to have a vegetable. And then the portion sizes are not fixed. When you eat out, you're given a certain amount, whereas at home you you know tend to serve yourself the amount you would desire at that moment. And then there's also a lot more conversation. Eating at home is, I think, a good way to bond with family. So I make that recommendation, and I see a lot of downstream benefits from that simple thing of eating more at home. I love that answer. <laughs> I'd like to thank my guest from Emory University School of Medicine, Dr. Miriam Voss. Dr. Voss, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. My pleasure. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.